I'm Peter. And I'm Felice. Welcome to our travel podcast. We're specialist travel writers and we've spent half a lifetime exploring every corner of the world. So we want to share with you some of our extraordinary experiences and the amazing people we've met along the way. This week we're raising our glasses in celebration of the Christmas spirit. And who better to do it with than the cocktail king himself? Chris Madigan is a specialist food, drink and travel writer and at the moment, in the final run-up to the holiday period, his particular emphasis is on festive drink. Now, no one knows more about cocktails, stirred or shaken, and how to make them than Chris. Chris, welcome to the show. Really nice to have you with us today. Now... Christmas is coming. Tell us about what we should drink on Christmas Day. Well, first of all, thanks very much for having me. Uh, Merry Christmas to the both of you. And I'm going to say let's raise a French 75 cocktail to, to Christmas. It may be a bit controversial given the uh, to and fro between our country and France right now, but I love all things French. And this is a kind of classic fizzy celebratory cocktail. I always think that the trouble at Christmas is that people think about the drinks they're going to have and they tend to be so rich and the food that it's accompanying is so rich that the whole effect is rather, you know, slugging basically. And uh, um, what you actually need is a little pick-me-up. So I actually tend to favour at, at Christmas cocktails that are more bright and acidic or even bitter. So this is a lemon and gin base with a little bit of sweetness as well, and then topped up with champagne or sparkling wine of your choice. So give us a quick recipe for this drink. It's kind of made in two parts. So the, the the first part is shaken and then it's topped up with the champagne because obviously you don't want to be shaking a fizzy wine all over the place if, unless you want to paint your walls. So you start with the ratio is three to one of gin and lemon juice, freshly squeezed lemon juice and a third part and a third of a part as well of sugar syrup. You can buy sugar syrups in, in bottles. You can have a straight sugar syrup or you can have it slightly infused with a vanilla flavour or you can use a gom syrup, which is great because it gives it a little more textured mouthfeel, a bit more sort of luscious feel to, to the drink. So that's really nice. Or you can simply make your own. You get some sugar, twice as much water, you heat it up, the sugar melts into the water, you let it cool down again and you've got your own house-made syrup. Again, you could flavour that if you like. If you wanted to, could you swap the sugar for something healthy like maple syrup or honey? Well, you could certainly, yes, you, you certainly could. It would, again, that's another option of making it, you know, a, a richer taste but you'd still have the lemon and then so you shake those three ingredients the gin the lemon the syrup with plenty of ice in a shaker and then you pour that into flutes and then you top it up with fizz i mean it's five parts compared to the one part of lemon but really you're going to do it visually so and what's the french connection here so it's called a French 75, which was actually, it's named after a gun in the First World War, I think it was, a French 75 calibre artillery weapon. It's actually an American, you know, most of the classic cocktails are from America. It sounds so much more creative than when I was a child Christmas, the cocktail was eggnog or creme de menthe. 
that was it. Oh, you see, those those are the things I'm talking about. They're just too they're too rich for Christmas, I think. Or at least somebody else is going to be serving a really heavy red wine, or yeah, this is going to be unusual, I think, at Christmas, even though it's a it's a classic cocktail. So this is something we could have before we open the presents, or while we're opening the presents, right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, you could call it a breakfast cocktail. <laughs> I don't, I don't know when you open your presents. We in in our house, we always had this sort of um, delayed gratification. We couldn't open our presents after the Christmas lunch, which then got served very late anyway. So, yeah. Well, what do we do here? I think we have our presents before lunch, don't we? Yeah, our children open them. As soon as they get up. <laughs> I, mean, I think it's a good brunch cocktail. Yeah. I think it's a good brunch cocktail. Yeah. And then when we then move on to the food and you recommend a turkey, would you? God, that's the last thing I'd want. Okay. The only reason for having a turkey is you've got 20 people in the house. I mean, come on. <laughs> there is absolutely no reason to have a turkey at Christmas unless you have to bulk feed people. Goose is a nightmare to cook, fat dripping everywhere. I like a game bird myself, whether it's a pheasant or a a partridge. Last year, we only had a small bubble, so I did uh, a beef wellington. I live in a house with a vegetarian, and I very rarely get to eat or cook meat. But So I did a a beef wellington and a beetroot wellington. Wow, beetroot wellington sounds unusual. Yeah, well, a beetroot wellington is you literally just take some cooked beetroot and jam them together to form a roll, a bit like uh, a fillet of beef in a beef wellington. And then you you do the duxelle of, of mushrooms around it, not parma ham, obviously, but yeah, the, the mushrooms and onion around it. And then, yeah, and you, you treat it just like it's a, a slab of beef and you get a satisfying bit of red seeping out of it, which uh, <laughs> is similar again to the beef. So can you tell us, how did you get into food and drink writing in the first place? Well, actually, it came from travel, because for me, the food and the drink of, of a destination is a really good expression of, you know, well, in drink, you call it terroir, but the character of, of a place it is ingrained in, in the culture is of anywhere you visit. There's a reason that, say, vodka is the, the drink of Poland and Russia and Ukraine, that rum is the, the drink of the Caribbean. It's because of the crops that you grow there. And the reason for the crops you grow there is because of, you know, the nature of your land, the the climate and, and your history as well. For example, in, in Poland, they made their vodka from grains for hundreds of years because that's what they had. They didn't have potatoes until until we had potatoes. And then it was discovered that potatoes grew really well in, uh, in that climate. So potatoes became a popular crop and when you've got a lot of something, you make booze out of it. Let's, <laughs> let's be fair. <laughs> I was always one of those people who, when I when I travelled to a place, I want to find out, A, what the local speciality foods are, but also what the local speciality drinks are. It grew from that, really, and, and, and there are just some, some fantastic stories uh, around the history of drink. So when were cocktails first invented? Who made the first one? Well, funny enough, talking of that link between travel and drinks, reputedly the person who made the first cocktail was Sir Francis Drake. Other stories say it was his cousin, Richard Drake, but they were both privateers or pirates, uh, illegalised pirates around the Caribbean. So a lot of the history of drink is about medicine, really. 
and then medicine becomes a good excuse <laughs> for a boozer. You know, all those Italian Amaros, for example, uh, you know, where it's lots of herbs and barks and what have you infused into, into alcohol. Those were originally meant to be tinctures to help certain health aspects. And so this cocktail was supposed to be medicine and then everyone just liked it. What happened was, whichever of the drakes it was, the crew went down with basically with dysentery. And of course, they were suffering from scurvy generally anyway. They, their health was absolutely appalling. So he came up with this drink, which was to take the local aguardiente, fire water, which was kind of a little like rum, maybe more like a cachaça from Brazil rather than rum because it was made from the raw cane juice. So what they did was they got, there was a local tree whose bark had medicinal qualities for to ease the stomach. They had something like a mint leaf, an aromatic leaf, which was also supposed to be good for the, the stomach, and lime for the scurvy. Put that in and just basically shook that up in the fire water. But it sounds pretty familiar as a cocktail because it, it's pretty much a mojito. Yeah, the first mojito. I suppose an extremely useful drink when you're playing bowls or something like that. <laughs> it would. I mean, I, I can imagine that having used it as so-called medicine, um, it was then. It was then. To, oh, I think I need a little bit of medicine before the next frame of bowls. Yeah. Oh, uh, don't worry about the Armada. <laughs> I'll be fine after a couple more of these. So it was called, it, <laughs> it came to be known El, as El Drake, which was what the Spanish called Francis Drake. Going back to food, have yeah. you always been passionate about food, you know, even as a child? Uh, very much so. I was very lucky that my grandparents had a house in Italy, just in the Ligurian hills above a place called Finale Ligure near, near Genoa. We went there every summer. We would go there for quite a few weeks. And so we would go shopping in local Italian shops. We used to find all sorts of delicious stuff. And I basically started learning Italian from menus. But also on the on the way down there, because we were going to the same place every summer, and sometimes we, we kids, uh, not realising how lucky and privileged we were, would moan about going to the same place every time when we knew people who were going off to Florida or whatever. But we used to, to mix it up a bit, used to take different routes down through Europe, either through France or... Uh, and through Germany, but the, but through France was particularly great for and my mum was and is a great cook and a real foodie, which is where I get it from. I just remember her sort of sitting in the front seat with obviously before the internet, uh, just surrounded by guidebooks, Michelin guides, Arthur Eperon, all these sort of things. And, and my dad, he liked going through Germany because uh, he like he likes going fast. But we wanted to go through France to go to these incredible little out of the way places. And so I had snails when I was eight, frog's legs, that sort of thing. I was I was always adventurous with food and. Yeah, going back to cocktails, I mean, some of the most famous cocktails have been made by chance, haven't they, where people have just mixed ingredients together. I, I like to think that I had a little bit of influence here on one particular cocktail. It's a long tale, but I found myself in a prison camp of Idi Amin in Uganda in the 1970s, and I'd been accused of spying and was sentenced to death. But when I came out of jail and I ended up staying with Idi Amin, and the first thing I really needed was a, a gin and tonic I wanted, but was there any tonic? No tonic in the country. I found a bottle of gin, but no tonic. So what I did was to find a, a, a soda siphon, which there was in the, in the Idi Amin's palace, called, mm. they called Soda Stream, that's what they were called. So I, I got that. 
I put some boiled water in because you know, essentially you need to try and get clean water. Mix in some uh, uh, quinine tablets that I had with me and mix that together, put a bit of in the soda stream and bingo, you've got tonic water. Stick the gin in and it was delicious. I'd say, well, it felt delicious <laughs> at the right. time compared to what I've been having. I mean, <laughs> forgive me for not reacting with shock, as uh, I hope some of the listeners um, are are reacting to about the the casual reference to your your death sentence from Idi Amin. You have told me before about that. I think there's nothing better, is there, than a drink that you've created out of the blue when you thought you were going to die a few hours earlier. Um, <laughs> I, I think that's very true. Certainly after my experience in, in, in jail there, I thought that I would drink wine with every meal apart from breakfast for the rest of my life. I haven't actually religiously stuck to that, but I got quite close. Well, our um, late great mutual friend, travel writer Doug Sager, he and I, we got stuck on the side of a mountain and had several brushes with death. And at the time he wasn't drinking. However, um, <laughs> he made an exception that night and dug out some wine. And actually that was quite good wine that we drank after our near-death experience but the food we had was just a ready meal lasagna but it was the best tasting thing i've ever had in, in terms of your making your own cocktail there i gave you the measurements for that french 75 but don't follow them make your own cocktail from that felice you said how about maple syrup or you know or honey absolutely there are millions of cocktail recipes out there because bartenders always experiment. What that proves is, and there are delicious ones that come from just tweaking something slightly. Take the Negroni, for example. It's one part gin, one part Campari, and one part red vermouth. Let's say martini. You know, that's the easy one. But it's a movable feast there. You could substitute different different types of vermouth. You can have a white vermouth, a dry vermouth. If you want it slightly drier instead of the sweet red vermouth, you could replace Campari with an Italian Amaro, for example. Find three things that are a, a little similar. They're all aromatic, actually. So you can mess about with them all you like. You can replace the, the gin with whiskey or... You know, that makes a boulevardier, which is a, another classic, maybe a bit more Christmassy. Just try experimenting. And the great thing about that is, is, of course, that if you start experimenting with cocktails that you're going to serve, you want to get the, the recipe right on the day that you're serving it. But it means that two days before you get have a little session yourself. So uh, it's always fun. What's the most unusual drink and food that you've ever had? The most unusual food was probably... I say unusual because the only food I've disliked was in Romania, pulling on a brush off. We went to this, Peter, were you there? We went to some sort of camp thing in the woods. Yeah, I was there. Round a fire. Yeah. And they served us bear. Yeah, it was uh, one of the more unpleasant things I've ever eaten. It, it, was, it sounds tough, doesn't it? It was tough beyond your dreams. And it, when they said, oh, this is bear meat... I sort of had, you know, to my mind, I sort of had this impression of a, uh, you know, some big, hairy, sweaty bear and that what that would taste like. And funnily enough, it tasted like a big, hairy, sweaty bear. <laughs> Is that the <laughs> best end of Paddington? But- <laughs> um, and, but it's, it's, uh, it's a tie between that and whale meat, which I was served. I didn't order it 
myself it wasn't it wouldn't be something that i would volunteer to eat but i was served it in greenland where it is a staple rather than a sort of it's not a luxury or a you know or whatever you want to call it uh it certainly isn't a luxury the taste of that uh, i remember once in in the fridge uh had some some beef and but also some tuna in a bag in a shelf above and it leaked and the sort of fishy taste of the tuna <laughs> blood got into the beef and it kind of tasted like that i don't know it was either like it tasted either like beefy tuna or tunery beef i'm not sure but you know that's not surf turf action i want to experience again you know well it's one of the stranger cocktails i've had in life i had had one in kazakhstan made with half fermented mare's milk oh that's yeah not something i i rushed to drink again I've had unusual and unpleasant foods like bear or whale, but I've also had an unusual drink, which is animal related. Have you ever had viperine? It's it's around in the you find it in the Alps. Catch a viper. Probably I think they catch it in in around the uh, the autumn time when when you have to be very careful. You, you're searching for mushrooms. You have to be very careful of of the vipers around. But they catch them and then they they do kill it first. They then put it into the bottom of a bottle, which they then fill up with some god knows what pure alcohol. I think it's just neutral grain spirit, which is just just alcohol. And then it kind of sits in there. You have this adder, sorry, adder, viper, at the bottom of this bottle. You said, have we ever had it? And I haven't, but I've seen it and said no to it because the thought of having that in the bottle while you're drinking it. What, in case it came out? or um... Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Reincarnation. Yeah. Don't worry, it's drunk. It's it's definitely asleep, even if it's alive. <laughs> what other unusual drinks have you had? Oh, the Grolla, Grolla or whatever it's called. You yeah, know, in, I never in, liked that very in much. In Italy, where you pass around the thing. I'm sure that's banned now because of COVID. Well, exactly, yeah. I mean, I actually had, in the same place as I had Viperine, that was down in France, not not Italy, that I, I had it. It was in uh, Champagny or Vanoise. But yeah, Grolla, it tastes good, but I was well ahead of the curve on the, uh, oh, I don't like the idea of this, because it's, isn't it, it's, it's a sort of bowl where you have to seal off a circle of mouth spout, and you have to seal off two of them, otherwise it'll pour out of that and then drink out of one, and then you hand it round, and the idea is that each person has their own mouth spout. But the, the flaw in it is that, yeah, but someone else has put their thumb on your mouth spout. So, yeah, I, I it's don't not think very it's hygienic. It's, what's the worst thing you've ever eaten? Something horrible in Japan, but I don't never knew what it was. To this day, <laughs> I don't know what it was. And also something horrible in China at a in the dark restaurant where you you can't see anything and you have to just taste, so you don't know what it is you're eating. Yeah, it's quite dangerous. If you're doing it in Paris, that's not so bad, but doing it in Beijing, Beijing I can imagine you might be getting some bits of duck that you don't really want to know about. Mm, maybe, yeah. <laughs> what, about, what about drink? Are there any cocktails that you hate? Well, I guess it's a, I, I'm not keen on sweet cocktails, as you might have gathered so you wouldn't choose a pina colada then but then there's a time and a place for it isn't there i mean if you're on a beach it's a toss-up between the planter's punch and a pina colada is what i order first again you're celebrating the place that you're going to there's a time and a place for a naff cocktail definitely and these days you write brochures or leaflets for barman is that right 
Actually, a little more than that. So during lockdown, when obviously the travel side of things was, was totally not in the air, now is up in the air. You know, basically drink got me through lockdown. Um, but um, in, in the traditional way in the evening, but, uh, but my day job actually was writing a curriculum for bartenders to get a, to get a professional qualification. Over the last sort of 10 years or so, being a bartender has has had a, you know, sort of more of a raised status. We had the uh, 50 best bars announced as big as the 50 best restaurant award these days with number one and two being you know, London, the Connaught number one, and a, a new bar, Teheran Elementary, got into the, uh, into the number two position, which is run by a couple, Alex Kretainer and uh, Monica Berg, who's uh, from Norway, who I actually, a few years ago, had, had the privilege to travel to, to a remote part of Norway, the Lofoten Islands, where there was this event put on called uh, Kitchen on the Edge of the World, organised by the chef, Valentine Warner. And so Monica was there as the bartender. We went up, climbed up some mountains. I saw she had a rucksack on, but I wasn't sure what was in it. And then it turned out she had lugged a, a huge... Uh, not a samovar, what do you call it, a, a, a sort of like a tea urn, all the way up this mountain. She was hopping around like a goat, but whereas I was like really lumbering up. Um, yeah, and in it, it had this incredibly, incredible sort of hot toddy type cocktail that she'd made earlier. Absolutely delicious with like lingonberries in it and, you know, real kind of local ingredients and that sort of thing. So, which goes back to what I was saying about that whole, you know, sort of experiencing the the place through expressed in a, in a cocktail. Now, the most famous cocktail in the world is almost certainly the dry martini. James Bond liked it shaken, not stirred. There's so many combinations of different garnishes you can put on it, all sorts of things. But how do you actually make the perfect dry martini? Well, again, you know, you can do it however suits you. That's always important. And if James Bond walks into a bar and asks for it shaken, not stirred, a bartender should not say, uh, actually, that's wrong. However, having said that, actually, that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> a martini is one of those alcohol-forward drinks. It's all about subtlety of flavour. So if you shake it, what you will lose is subtlety of flavour because shaking does two things. Adding ice to any cocktail does two things. It cools it and it dilutes it shaking it cools and dilutes it more quickly and more effectively than stirring but not all cocktails you don't want as much dilution or as much coolness as as others and and martini is one that you want cool but not ice ice cold because you will lose a lot of the flavor you know it's like getting cheese out of the fridge and eating it straight away as opposed to leaving it at room temperature for a bit uh, so stir it, basically. Now, the other bit is the vermouth. You know, how much vermouth? That, again, is is up to you. Tends to be a bit of a kind of macho culture around it to say, oh, just, you know, wave it around in the general vicinity of, of the glass. But, you know, the vermouth actually does add a roundness, takes the harsh edge off neat gin. And I would say gin just because, again, you're getting more flavour out of gin. But good vodka, as long as it's not overly, you know, if it says it's been filtered 300 times, then then you don't want it because it's now just pure alcohol almost. It's got none of the flavour left. But I would favour gin. And I would say, you know, the trend these days is to 
because there's such good vermouths around, Belsazar vermouth is is an, an excellent vermouth. There's others around as well that you will find something that actually enhances the, the drink. You don't have to show off how hard you are by not having vermouth in there. And with a twist or with an onion or an olive? I'm a fan of a Gibson, which is the onion, or two onions specifically, uh, because as the story goes, it was a uh, a portrait artist who had, well, who'd been painting nudes all day and he wanted something to celebrate that. Um, so two small onions <laughs> represented something. I don't know what. <laughs> um, I don't know who he was painting. I, I like that, but then I love pickled things, so that works for me. My second favourite is an olive. That will enhance the dryness, and then obviously a, a lemon peel will give you just a little citrus zing. Try it lots of different ways and then discover the one you like best. And what do you have in your drinks cupboard right now at home? Well, according to my partner, way too much. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've got quite a few Irish whiskies at the moment, but that's because hopefully, as long as I don't catch COVID in the next few days, I am heading to Scotland for Christmas. And yeah, so I'm taking some Irish whiskey up to the Scottish in-laws for Christmas to uh, represent my half Irish side. I'm taking some Bushmills. Uh, I've got a very nice 18-year-old single malt from Bushmills. And then some JJ Corrie, which is produced by somebody I know in County Clare, that's what I'll be. That's what I'll be drinking over Christmas mainly, and probably putting it, uh, putting some of it into uh, a whiskey sour. Yeah, where do you see yourself in the next few years? Do you, will you carry on writing about drink and food and try and travel? I really hope we get to travelling again. I think what I'll be writing about mostly is kind of destination drink travel pieces. Really, I, th- I think that's the next growing sort of area of travel, like food travel was 20 years ago. And it exists in wine at the moment, but I think there's more to drink than wine. You know, there are incredible places to visit. Like the Dingle Distillery in the west of Ireland, for example, is great. And uh, Glenturret Distillery in Perthshire, that's just been taken over by Lalique. And they've now, you know, sort of turned it into a luxury destination with an incredible restaurant. Going back to Christmas. One final tip from you on what we should do on Boxing Day when we may be in need of the hair of the dog or something, because I think we'll be very much overindulging on Christmas Day. What's your tip for survival on Boxing Day? I'm going to mention something that you will be familiar with from your time with Idi Amin. I'm going to recommend that everyone gets a soda stream because... You're going to be dehydrated to having the heating way too high and eating too much and drinking too much on Boxing Day. And frankly, glugging down glasses of water can be a little bit boring. But if you have a soda stream, A, it's fun. (laughs) Pressing the button and getting the bubbles coming out. But also, you can add any flavour you like to it. And you can also still have have a bit to drink on uh, on Boxing Day, but you can make highballs. So they'll be a little bit more diluted, uh, you know, whiskey highball. And you can find all sorts of flavours and you can make up your own syrups and what have you. And you've got your fizzy water on almost on tap. How about a non-alcoholic cocktail? Are there any that taste good? Well, I always think that non-alcoholic cocktails... It's a bit like with vegetarian food where trying to ape the meat 
it doesn't really work. You have to say, right, I'm cooking with vegetables here. How do I make this amazing? And I think that's the same thing, not tr- not trying to make a sort of non-alcoholic version of a alcoholic cocktail. I would go to finding a good syrup, whether you buy that syrup, you know, or you make it yourself. You, you find flavours that work well together and then top them up with fizzy water. So if people want to get in touch with you, find out more about your writing, where can they do that? Well, probably best is to go to Instagram at Chris Madigan Writer, where I do put up various drinks, uh, drinks recipes, food recipes, that sort of thing. And when I travel, <laughs> it's on there as well. Chris Madigan, thank you very much for appearing on our show today. And we wish you the very best of luck in Happy Christmas and a good time in 2022, mixing all those wonderful cocktails. One final thing I think I should say is that it's sensible to drink responsibly and I'm sure you'd agree with that 100% I totally agree with that uh, everything I'm talking about is about flavor it's not about necking lots and lots of alcohol and causing problems for yourself your family and uh, your health have a little drink to celebrate whatever there is to celebrate <laughs> at this time of year and thank you so much for having me on the podcast and wish you all the best for 2022 i hope i'll see you out and about in the rest of the world that's all for now if you've enjoyed the show please visit our website actionpacktravel.com or you can subscribe on apple spotify amazon or any of the many podcast platforms You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. We'd love you to sign up for our regular emails too at peter at actionpacktravel.com. Until next week, stay safe.